Okay? Thank you, Judy. Well, good afternoon. I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the latest in our Alpheus T. Mason uh, lectures on American constitutionalism. Uh, these lectures are made possible in part by the generosity of John P. Hansel, uh, class of 46, and we are extremely grateful uh, to Mr. Hansel, a very loyal alumnus and friend of the James Madison program, for uh, his wonderful support. Uh, in the middle 1970s, uh, Princeton, though lacking a law school, having a wonderful tradition of study of constitutional law and jurisprudence, decided that it would try to attract to our campus the most distinguished legal scholar in the country. And so it offered the class of 1927 chair in legal history to the eminent Yale law professor, Robert H. Bork. He didn't take it. <laughs> we have now forgiven him and invited him back uh, to Princeton, and it's a pleasure uh, to welcome him here. Of course, Judge Bork is uh, well known to all of you. He served on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia from 1982 until 1988. He was nominated by President Reagan in 1987 for an associate justice position on the Supreme Court of the United States uh, in uh, a battle that still, I think, defines the contours of the American cultural conflict. Uh, Judge Bork's nomination was rejected uh, by the Senate. Uh, Judge Bork taught at Yale Law School from 1962 to 1975, and then again from 1972 to 1977. And he taught uh, in many courses along with the eminent constitutional scholar Alexander Bickel. He, of course, has a distinguished record in public service uh, even before his assumption of the Court of Appeals position on the D.C. Uh, Circuit. He served as uh, Solicitor General uh, of the United States from 1972 to 1977 and as Acting Attorney General in 1973-74. He is the author of three books, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Modern Liberalism and American Decline, The Antitrust Paradox, A Policy at War with Itself, which is now in a second uh, edition, and The Tempting of America, The Political Seduction of the Law. He is a graduate of the University of Chicago and the University of Chicago uh, Law School. He uh, also has the distinction of having been the teacher of Bruce Ackerman, Robert Reich, Anita Hill, and Hillary and Bill Clinton. I give you <laughs> Robert Bork. Thank you. That induction was going all right, right up until the end. Uh, actually, it's worse than that, but I won't mention the other names. And anyway, I didn't teach Hillary and Bill Clinton. I just said they were in the room. <laughs> and actually, what Princeton offered me was a, a chair in the history department, which I thought exceedingly strange. I pointed out to them I couldn't even name the U.S. president. And they said, well, nobody's perfect. And... Uh, <laughs> but I didn't take it. I don't know if most of you know what a Solicitor General does, uh, just to fill out that uh, list of jobs I've held. A Solicitor General does what most people think the Attorney General does. That is, he actually is the Chief Legal Officer of the, of the government. The government may not appeal any case from any court uh, without his approval. I remember approving uh, tax lien appeal in some Ohio state courts as well as uh, arguing in the Supreme Court. Uh, in fact, the Solicitor General is so uh, 
pervasive, his influence is so pervasive in the legal affairs of the government, that I used to say that if Richard Wagner had chosen to write an article, an uh, opera about the Solicitor General, it would be called Der Meister Scheister. <laughs> <coughs> well, the title of this talk suggests that the Constitution is not the same thing at all times, and indeed it isn't, uh, nor is it likely to have the same meaning in the future that it has today. Certainly the meaning it has today is not the same as it had in the past. And while I think the changeability of the doctrine, of the document in the hands of the courts is illegitimate, I do not intend to spend my time or waste yours bemoaning that fact. I've, I've bemoaned that fact so many times that I've tired of it myself. What I intend to do instead is give a brief account of where the meaning of the Constitution has been, where it stands now, and where I think it's likely to go. Um, the first changes in the Constitution were inevitable, I think. They were due to, they were due to flaws in the Constitution itself uh, and, or changes in the society which exposed those flaws. We're now in the course of uh, uh, changes in the Constitution due to uh, domestic ideology, and we may be in for changes in the Constitution in the future due to international ideology. Uh, changes tend to follow changes in the dominant class in America over time. Uh, since justices have life tenure, there's often a considerable lag between the arrival of a new dominant class and the adjustment of the court's jurisprudence. And that lag is usually called a constitutional crisis. And those crises are typically resolved by the death or retirement of the justices. And, uh, Perhaps the greatest engine of judicial reform is the fact of mortality, <laughs> which judges share with the rest of humanity. If they didn't, I would not have left the bench. It's a commonplace that today we do not live under the Constitution the framers designed. Uh, some major structural features were necessarily abandoned. The inevitable changes are familiar to you, and I won't spend much time rehearsing the obvious. The ideal of a limited federal government expressed by the enumeration of powers and the Tenth Amendment uh, will, is dead and will not be resurrected. It is futile to try to limit government to some defined sphere, Edward Banfield wrote. Nothing of importance can be done, he said, to stop the spread of federal power, let alone to restore something like the division of powers agreed upon by the framers of the Constitution. The reason, Banfield said, lies in human nature. Men cannot be relied upon voluntarily to abide by their agreements, including those upon which their political order depends. There is an antagonism amounting to an incompatibility between popular government, meaning government in accordance with the will of the people, and the maintenance of limits on the sphere of government. Uh, Banfield noted the first president to violate the uh, idea of a limited federal government, just to violate the idea of <laughs> confining itself to enumerated powers, was not Franklin Roosevelt, but George Washington. And certainly Congress now, Congress's power under the Commerce Clause and the Taxing and Spending Clauses is now virtually absolute. And the truth is the American people want big government. 
Now, in the last couple of years, there have been a few twitches in the corpses of federalism, and these twitches are mistaken by some conservatives as a harbinger of the revival of federalism, but they're wrong. A narrow Supreme Court itself, possibly transient majority, uh, can nibble around the edges of federal power, but that's all. I wouldn't want to be the judge who told the American people that Social Security and Medicare are unconstitutional, as they are, <laughs> under the original Constitution. And no such decision would stick for more than half an hour, which would be barely time for the judge to leave the country <laughs> for a country without an extradition treaty with the U.S. And, of course, the division of powers is no more uh, healthy. The president legislates now by executive uh, order. Independent agencies legislate, prosecute, and adjudicate, assuming the power of all three branches. The courts are engaged in the project of altering American laws and culture. It's even clear, as Kenneth Dam has demonstrated, that the power to coin money was intended to outlaw paper money. <laughs> if that had lasted, we would all be walking around with our pants sagging down around our knees or on knapsacks for, for purses on our backs. Uh, the, the government we live with now is far different from the government the, the framers desi uh, designed, and there's nothing the courts can do about it, even if they wanted to. And uh, But more recent, that's, those are inevitable, I think they're, there's no point in bemoaning them. More recently, the defamations of the Constitution Center on the Bill of Rights, which includes not only the first eight amendments, but also the 14th Amendment, applying uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, and privileges and immunities to the states. Uh, these defamations concern cultural issues, uh, and they were not made inevitable by any development or desire for a big government. They were instead the work of a newly enlarged and powerful social class. I said the court responds to the dominant culture. In the late 19th and early, early 20th centuries, activism, judicial activism, which is the name properly understood uh, for the habit of uh, judges announce, announcing principles and reaching results, which cannot plausibly be related to the text or the history of the Constitution. Uh, now, this activism, at first, served primarily the, the interests of the business class, uh, was then our dominant elite. The anti-business backlash and the popularity of government intervention in the economy, both fostered by the Depression, led to Franklin Roosevelt's appointment of liberal activist judges, which were increasingly supported by this new social class I'm going to talk about, which is the intellectual class. Now, the intellectual class has values and interests distinct from those of the general public, and any opinion poll will show you that fact. The result is a conflict that has come become known as our culture war, and for that reason, political struggles for control of the courts has become open and savage because it is part of the battle for dominance 
between uh, different moral views of our future. Lord Patrick Devlin, who engaged in the famous debate with H.L.A. Hart, the English jurist uh, prude, wrote in 1965 that those who have had the benefit of a higher education and feel themselves better equipped to solve the nation's problems than the average may find it distasteful to submit to herd opinion. History tells them that democracies are far from perfect and have in the past done many foolish and even wicked things. But they, the educated he means, do not dispute that in the end the will of the people must prevail, nor do they seek to appeal from it to the throne of reason. That was then, and in England, before the judges gained the power of judicial review to set aside the Act of Parliament. The university educated in America, and more recently in the United Kingdom, do dispute uh, the will of the people, that the idea that the will of the people must prevail, and they do seek to appeal from the will of the people to the federal, to the judiciary, which may, with some considerable hyperbole, be called the throne of reason. And they frequently succeed in preventing, preventing the will of the people from prevailing. Uh, one could wish that Lord Devlin's further remarks were truer. He said that a free society is as much offended by the dictates of an intellectual oligarchy as they are by those of an autocrat. In a democracy, educated men cannot be put into a separate category for the decision of moral questions. But that is precisely what the modern judicial review is doing, placing educated men, by and large liberal, in a separate category and accepting their dictates as the basis for constitutional decision-making. Lino Gralia, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas, put the matter rather bluntly. He said, the nightmare of the American intellectual is that the control of public policy should fall into the hands of the American people. Policy-making by the justices of the Supreme Court Intellectuals all is the is the um, in the name of the Constitution is the only way that this can be prevented. A major battleground in the in the culture war, therefore, is the struggle for control of the courts. Law is both a prize and a weapon in the culture war. Supreme Court justices are the major prize, but. Appeals court nominees are also important because they are final for all but a small sliver of cases that reach the Supreme Court. And that explains, I think, the behavior of the Senate Judiciary Committee today in dealing with George Bush's nominees. Uh, the culture war has been best described by James Davison Hunter, who had first adapted the term to the American context. It was originally a phrase by Bismarck. I think referring to the war between a Catholic and the Protestant cultures. But in modern times, that is not the nature of the culture war. And Hunter, as Hunter put it, on one side are the traditionalists who accord a presumption of legitimacy and worth to the long-standing 
sources of cultural authority. That is only a presumption, however, and traditionalists allow for the evolution of institutions and authorities as understandings and moralities gradually change. On the other side are what may be called the emancipationists, who are highly critical of constituted, constituted uh, authorities and institutions, and who would, would liberate the individual from their restraints. The, the result is an erosion of established sources of authority, often to the point where their continued existence is in doubt. This is a process that must have limits, at least, if a coherent uh, culture is to survive. That is, uh, unlimited or barely limited individual autonomy uh, cannot lead to a coherent culture. Uh, our courts, however, continually transgress and test those limits. The disagreement is not merely philosophical and cultural. It is intensely political and generates furious passions. It is, with some exceptions, pardonable, I believe, I hope, uh, to summarize, summarize it very roughly as a battle between the ethos of the student radicals of the 1960s and that of adherence to traditional bourgeois values. Now, the Emancipationist Party is led by, and in fact almost entirely consists of, intellectuals, a group that, as Friedrich Hayek noted, has long been characterized by disillusionment with the West principles, disparagement of its achievements, and exclusive concern for better worlds. That's a form of destructive utopianism, and it wasn't too serious as long as intellectuals were in a small minority. But that class exploded in size and influence after World War II. And in the 60s, their values became widespread. The GI Bill was a great boon in many ways, but it did have its costs. And one of them was expanding uh, almost enormously uh, the number of colleges, universities, students, and faculties. These are the institutions. Well, we're talking about uh, the composition of the intellectual class. It's important to be clear about that. <laughs> Most of its members aren't particularly good at intellectual work. <clears throat> they are people who deal at wholesale or retail in ideas and symbols, though they may not deal with them intelligently and they rarely originate any worthwhile ideas of their own. We're talking about journalists, print and electronics, denizens of Hollywood, foundation staffs, bureaucrats of mainline churches, and university faculties. To illustrate the breadth of the term intellectual as I use it, it would include, for example, Dan Rather and Barbara Streisand. And you name the university professor you prefer <laughs> in that list. I think you're safe, Robbie. Most people, however, do, do not think of the judiciary insofar as they think about the judiciary at all in the same way they should. 
uh, because the judiciary has become the uh, cavalry of the intellectual class. Television and motion pictures powerfully influence the direction of our culture, but they do not claim to speak with the moral and legal authority of the Constitution. And a constitutional ruling is important in and of itself, but it also establishes a principle which Americans take to heart, and in that way it changes morality and changes cultural outlooks. Uh, nor do these other institutions possess the judge's power to coerce. Television and motion pictures would not have the cultural impact they do if courts had not broken down the restraints of enacted law. Behavior and language are now routine on television and motion pictures that not long ago would have met not only with social disapproval, but with legal sanctions. No doubt public attitudes were changing in any event, but they could not have moved so far and so fast if the courts hadn't weakened moral curbs and made legal restraints virtually impossible. The Supreme Court over the past half century has followed the agenda of the intelligentsia. The court majority has liberates the individual and will individual will in constitutional issues of speech, religion, abortion, sexuality, welfare, publication, public education, and much else. Uh, judicial activism, which as I said, a term flung about with great frequency, re re I remind you, refers to the practice of enunciating principles and claiming reaching results that have no plausible relationship to the actual Constitution. The results are twofold for this kind of activism we have in the modern era. One is the erosion of democracy, as because all of these emancipations of the individual take place by striking down statutes that the elected representatives of the people have, have uh, enacted. So it involves the erosion of judicial activism, involves the erosion of democracy and the steady movement of the culture in the left liberal direction. If the, test, if the text, history, and structure of the Constitution no longer guide and confine the judge, he has nowhere to look but to his own ideas of justice. And these are likely to be formed by the intellectual class he has known for most of his life and whose approval he very much wants. Now, the judicial desire for approval, you might think people with life tenure wouldn't have that desire, but they certainly do. Many of them do. The judicial desire for approval results in a conscious or unconscious conditioning. I think it's often unconscious conditioning. And I would illustrate it with the story about a professor of psychology who lectured his class repeatedly about how people could be unconsciously conditioned to behave in ways you want them to. And after listening to him for a couple of class hours, the class decided to try it on him. Now, he was a pacer. He paced from one wall to the other as he lectured. So as he paced to the wall with the windows, the class gave him rapt attention, took notes, sat as if transfixed by his logic and his profundity. And as he paced in the other direction, they began putting down their pencils, rustling papers, talking to each other. Within 10 minutes, they had him pinned to the outside wall. 
And I, th I think so it is with judges who really experience praise from the universities and law schools and the press and the rest of the intellectual class apparatus when they advance the intellectual class agenda and criticism when they do not. Now, why is the intellectual class, as I have described it, why is it a liberal intellectual class? The most persuasive answer I know of was that given by Max Weber, who said that with the decline of religious belief, a certain group of persons who have a particular need for transcendence, for a larger meaning in their lives, turns to the secular version of religion. And that is the utopian vision of the left. Conservatives have no utopian vision uh, to match it. Uh, socialism has collapsed economically, but it lives on, I think, in the cultural world. Now, it is possible with a decent respect for time limits, well, you'd be glad to know I have no idea how long this talk is, uh, but I will claim at least a decent respect for time limits. Uh, it's possible within that limit to give only a few examples from the cornucopia of instances of decisions by the Supreme Court that could not conceivably have been reached by any known process of reasoning from the text, history, or structure of the actual Constitution. I would focus primarily upon the First Amendment, whose provisions dealing with religion and speech are central to Americans' understanding of themselves and their freedoms. The first words of the amendment, of course, are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, now, the Supreme Court, of course, has expanded these prohibitions from Congress to states and localities. But that is of very secondary importance to the explosive expansion they have given to the words establishment and speech. Um, they have, in effect, reversed the meaning of the religion clause. The establishment clause of the First Amendment has been read to outlaw any form of prayer or even meditation in public schools because somebody might be praying and you wouldn't know it. Uh, they have outlaws even non-sectarian prayer at a middle school commencement, which is a non-sectarian prayer at uh, commencement is an ancient tradition, but it's been outlawed. They've outlawed the display of the creche on public property and the posting of the Ten Commandments on a high school wall. They've outlawed prayer before a football game that no one be hurt. Indeed, any suggestion of government preference for religion over irreligion is outlawed. Now, all of this is justified by a stray sentence from Thomas Jefferson about the wall of separation between church and state. What they don't mention is that Jefferson's views about the relationship of religion and government was entirely idiosyncratic at the time. We have uh, long known that Jefferson's view was a distinctly minority view among those who proposed and ratified the First Amendment. 
But now Philip Hamburger, a legal historian, has written a new book called Separation of Church and State, which decisively and in great detail uh, proves that the wall of separation is an historical fiction. And the view that was, it was a view that was decisively rejected by even minority religion, religious groups at the time. What the thing, what the First Amendment says is no establishment. It does not say more than that. The speech clause really hasn't fared any better. The modern court has thrown constitutional protection around pornography and despite its disclaimers, around obscenity. The worst forms of vulgarity are decided, are shielded from democratic control, as anyone who attends the movies or watches cable television can attest. Computer simulated child pornography is now uh, a First Amendment value and may not be, may not be uh, banned. Speech advocating law violation and violent overthrow of the government is protected in all but the most extreme circumstances, while ordinary political speech is severely limited by court-approved campaign finance laws. The court has held that nude dancing is entitled to considerable protection on the grounds that it is expressive of something or other. Uh, it certainly is. Theodore Olson, before he became Solicitor General, the new Meister-Scheister, once observed that since nude dancing is preferred to prayer as a constitutional matter, students should dance naked before football games. <laughs> but I added the caveat that they must not achieve nakedness by doing the dance of the, second, of the seven veils because that has biblical connotations. Uh, homosexuals have been given special constitutional rights, and it's probably predictable that the United States Supreme Court will sooner rather than later follow those state courts that have held homosexual marriages must be allowed and recognized. The distinctions between the sexes have been minimized with such decisions as that forbidding Virginia to support an all-male military college. It would be possible to continue in this matter, manner for some time to demonstrate that the court is now enforcing, is not enforcing the original Constitution, but a Constitution of its own devising. All of these cases enact intellectual class preferences over the preferences of the general public whose representatives enacted the laws struck down. One result is likely to be the loss of social cohesion with what consequences it is impossible, for me at least, to foresee. There's no obvious end to this process because there's no obvious end to intellectual class dominance in our society or in the societies of the Western world generally. But there is now a further development uh, on the horizon which is apt to affect the Constitution of the future and that is the internationalization of constitutional law. Now, the culture war is not a phenomenon confined to the United States. It rages throughout the Western world, throughout all Western societies. And as one would expect, the courts of other nations as well as international courts line up with the intellectual class values uh, 
wherever they achieve power, the power of judicial review under a constitution. Indeed, Israel's court is quite phenomenal. It has perhaps the most activist court in the world, and it has fashioned a pervasive and uh, intrusive constitutional law without even having a constitution, which is a considerable feat. The internationalization of constitutional law takes two forms. One is the increasing tendency of national courts to cite each other, uh, despite the differences in their constitution's history and wording, um, and despite their differing cultural and historical backgrounds out of which these constitutions grew. The second is the creation of international tribunals that intend to govern America's conduct both domestically and abroad. Traditional international law dealt with the relations between nations, but these new forms of international law, promulgated almost entirely by, uh, by professors and international bureaucrats, uh, purports to govern individuals as well as nations and to govern those individuals in their own countries as well as when they are abroad. Now, I said it's increasingly common for many nations to cite the, doctrine, cite the decisions of other nations' courts in making their own decisions. And Europeans have been highly critical of the United States Supreme Court for not citing European decisions. And some United States people have apologized, deans of law school, president of our association, and said, we'll catch up. Uh, some of our justices have already done that. That is, uh, Justice Stevens in Thompson against Oklahoma, writing for four members of the court, said that urged the court's interpretation of the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, uh, should follow, among other sources, that, he said, of the leading members of the Western European community. He cited nations that had abolished the death penalty by legislation rather than by judicial decision, as well as three human rights treaties, two of which had been signed but not ratified by the United States. And Justice Brennan, in another case involving the death penalty, uh, committed when the defendant was under 16 or 17 years, was well, 16 or 17 years of age, cited, among other things, and I quote, its rejection throughout the world as making it not constitutionally tolerable that certain states persist in authorizing the execution of adolescent offenders. Why American states should be bound by legislation or decisions in other parts of the world was not explained. But my favorite one is Justice Breyer's. He has several times looked to decisions of foreign courts for guidance about the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. And my favorite was his 1999 opinion in Knight against Florida, in which he found useful, he said, for our guidance, decisions about allowable delays of executions by the Privy Council of Jamaica, the Supreme Court of India, and the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe. No doubt we have much to learn about our Constitution from Zimbabwe. The modern interpretation of the 1799 Alien Torch Claim Act allows, which was not the interpretation early on, allows 
United States courts to try and award damages in cases involving acts done by foreign nationals in their own countries. The justification is that the act specifies violations of the law of nations as justiciable. Of course, the law of nations in 1789, when the law was passed, when the uh, law was passed, was concerned with such matters as piracy on the high seas and violations of the rights of ambassadors. Uh, had nothing to do with what we now call crimes against humanity. But that is what it has become, and the courts have moved to undertake judgment in such cases. Belgium has gone even further. They have enacted a law that their courts have jurisdiction, what they call universal jurisdiction, to try crimes against humanity committed anywhere in the world by anybody. And most, of course, the case that comes to mind is they tried certain Rwandan nuns for not doing enough to save people who were being massacred. Now, customary international law is supposed to reflect the customary practices of nations, but it is, in fact, if it, if it reflected the customary practice, practices of nations, actually, it would be a pretty brutal law. But it is, in fact, the creation of professors and non-governmental organizations called NGOs, which are advocacy groups that infest the United Nations and other places, and they are without constituents and accountable to no one. Jeremy Rabkin, a professor of, at Cornell, <coughs> offers the example, one of many, of the World Heritage Committee of, the, of UNESCO condemning the growth of the government of Australia for allowing a uranium mine to operate near an Australian park. Uh, you may wonder why UNESCO is concerned about what Australia does with mines in its own parks. But Bradkin says the pattern is clear. An international organization with no real authority has gained special leverage by acting as a bridge between opposition factions in one country and allies in other countries over a matter that has no real con connection to those other countries. And that, I think, is one way uh, these people are trying to change American law domestically. They go abroad and look for allies and then pressure the United Nations or some other groups to pass resolutions and offer treaties that would tie the United States down. That's the same pattern that in 1998 led a UN special reporter to issue a report condemning the United States for racist and abusive practices in applying the death penalty, while ignoring the repeated judgments of United States courts, including the Supreme Court in this country. American opponents of the death penalty work with similar groups elsewhere to condemn U.S. law. And the same thing is hap happening with regard to environmental and labor issues. Now, these are not small matters because when, when there's an international condemnation, many people take that to be a valid moral judgment. I don't know why the United Nations has become a moral authority uh, despite its uh, history, but it has. And that kind of thing presses, presses upon our law and presses upon the interpretation of our Constitution. Uh, for example, the restatement of foreign relations law, which is restatements are a traditional and well-known and well-respected statements of various branches of U.S. law, 
But the restatement of foreign relations law now says that there is now a federal common law of foreign relations by which federal courts have the power to impose their rulings on states and localities even when there is no direct treaty or statute but only a federal court's notion of evolving international customary law. The advocacy groups will press the courts hard for that result. And of at least equal concern is the sudden rise, sudden popularity of international tribunals judging governmental and individual behavior under the loosest standards. Henry Kissinger recently said, in less than a decade, an unprecedented concept has emerged to submit international politics to judicial procedures. It has spread with extraordinary speed and has not been subject to systematic debate, partly because of the intimidating passion of its advocates. The danger is that it is being pushed to extremes, which risk submitting the tyranny of judges for that of governments. Historically, the dictatorship of the virtuous has often led to inquisitions and even witch hunts. It would be possible to mention only a few examples. There is, for example, the International European Convention for Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, which is interpreted by the Court of Human Rights sitting in Strasbourg. And its decisions are binding on nations that have ratified it. In fact, Germany and, and Great Britain, have, uh, UK, have incorporated that convention and the decisions of the Strasbourg Court into their domestic law so that English judges are now striking down acts of parliament in accordance with what the court in uh, Strasbourg says. Uh, the, the convention sounds noble. It contains the right to life, the prohibition of torture, uh, the right to liberty and security, the right to respect for private and family life, freedom of expression, and the prohibition of discrimination. But predictably, the Strasbourg court has moved rapidly to the cultural left, holding, for example, that Northern Ireland's anti-sodomy laws were invalid, that members of the armed forces cannot be discharged for homosexual behavior, despite the conclusions of a study by the Ministry of Defense and a vote in Parliament, reversed the conviction of and awarded damages to a man, I guess for a violation of his privacy, to a man who had made a videotape of himself engaging group sex with four other men, held that a man suspected of a double murder in the United States could not be extradited from the United Kingdom because his mental suffering, if convicted and sentenced to death, would constitute prohibited torture. Uh, more such examples can be praised and they're in store. The International Court of Justice, or the World Court, has interpreted the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations to supersede both the American Constitution and the laws of the states. And said it's, they said it's, the court said it's incumbent upon the United States to review and reconsider the convictions and sentence of anybody in a serious, of a serious crime by taking into account the violation of rights set forth in the Vienna Convention. During the NATO air war against Yugoslavia, both UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights asserted that NATO's lack of Security Council authorization violated international law. Now, the five permanent members of the Security Council, France, China, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, 
each have a right to veto any proposed action. If the Security Council should achieve the, the predominance claimed, it's obvious that the interest of the United States, and indeed of any nations, could be frustrated by a single member of the Council. The new International Criminal Court, which we have yet to join, but I think a future administration may well do so, has no rules of procedure, no protection for the rights of the accused comparable to ours, no clear separation between prosecutors and judges. The statutes are quite vague. For example, the statute defines war crimes as intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such an attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, which would be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage to be anticipated. Nobody can know in advance how that sentence is going to be applied by some unknown court, by some unknown judges on that court. Almost all attacks inevitably cause harm to civilians and to the natural environment. And I don't know how a field commander is supposed to judge when, or, when he may or may not attack under a wide range of largely unforeseeable circumstances and outcomes and, and judges uh, who, uh, who are in a foreign, foreign judges on a court and he doesn't know who they are. Taken seriously, the statute would paralyze an army's capacity to fight. Taken cynically, as it should be, the statute provides a basis for politically motivated reprisals after the event, reprisals undertaken uh, by judges in the guise of law. You would have to be a dreamer to suppose that that law would be applied neutrally as rather than discriminatorily against the United States. And we have many examples of the world court uh, being discriminatory against United States actions. Uh, worse, the International Criminal Court provides a fertile field for judicial activism. The representative of the International Law Commission that produced the original draft treaty said, uh, let us think about ways in which new developments in substantive law and even new crimes can be brought within the jurisdiction of the court as time passes and law progresses. One might think the United States, being by far the world's most powerful nation, would laugh at attempts to control its domestic policies and attempts to try its citizens in foreign courts for acting in pursuit of our foreign policy. But we should not be too sure about that. <laughs> the dominant elites in this country revel in their own bad conscience. As Kenneth Minogue wrote, the new idea of replacing politics with law has evoked a powerful self-critical movement that has turned the West into a kind of Uriah Heap civilization, much given to wringing its hands about past sins. And uh, Minogue says the Catholic Church has apologized to Jews. Christians have expressed contrition to Muslims about the Crusades. Christopher Columbus has been uh, construed as little better than a war criminal. And he goes on, such sentiments, now widely diffused in schools, 
undermine the self-confidence that would sustain America's great power status. The Olympians Project, he calls the folks who want to get international law to control us all, the Olympians Project, international governance, cannot therefore be seen as anything other than a bid for power by a new class of power holders. And then that new class is the same one we're talking about, which has affected the domestic ideology of the courts. Uh, internationalism and the international law are the means by which these people expect to affect changes that are too radical even for America's activist courts. That is, they are pushing uh, for inclusion in our law and inclusion in treaties that we are asked to sign. And if we don't sign them, we are condemned as a rogue nation. Uh, results that, as I say, are more radical than our courts or, will, courts or legislatures are willing to give them. Well, to step back and ask where we're heading, what we're seeing is the steadily advancing judicialization, not merely of political issues, but of the conduct of private behavior and of international relations including the use of armed force. The transfer of control of individual behavior in domestic affairs from individuals and legislatures to judges is fairly far advanced in the United States, perhaps more so in Canada and growing in Europe and to its extreme in Israel. Israel's Supreme Court, for example, has decided that Yet parents may not physically discipline their children. And Justice Aharon Barak, the president of the court, has stated the court has authority to judge the deployment of Israeli troops in wartime. These pronouncements, only two of the dozens that could be cited, are perfectly compatible with President Barak's, that is, president of the court, Barak's statements that all of life is grist for judiciary because, he said, the moment that a certain realm is not justiciable, the wielder of power then does whatever he wants. Of course, as the, for, as, if the, uh, as the Israeli example testifies, the moment a certain realm is judiciable, justiciable, the justices of the court do whatever they want. That is confirmed by Barak's view that the three the judges, they quote him, Judges must sometimes depart the confines of the legal system and channel into it fundamental values not yet found into it. Now, it's, I think it's interesting that Yale Law School has invited Barack to come up and speak to its students, or at least some professors have invited him to come up and speak to their students, no doubt, upon how they should behave when they are judges. <clears throat> I don't know what the Western world will look like if these trends continue, or whether its citizens will be content or fractious. But if that world is to be avoided, I think it will be by political means, political action, and not the self-restraint of judges. When Canada framed its Charter of Rights and Freedoms a few years back, its leaders said they wanted to avoid the rampant judicial activism they saw in the United States and which they called the American disease. Now Canada, along with the rest of the Western world, has discovered that it's not an American disease, it's a judicial disease, and it knows no boundaries. Um, 
and if it, as it affects both our courts and international courts, it is shaping the Constitution of the future, or it may be shaping the Constitution of the future. Uh, one thing we know is the trends don't continue forever, and nothing is unchangeable. And uh, although the trends I point to uh, are for a world governed by judges and bureaucrats, that is by no means the necessary outcome, and we shall see as time passes. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Bork. Well, let's open the uh, floor for questions. It's our custom in the Madison uh, program to give priority in the questioning to Princeton students. So are there some Princeton? I see a lot of students who've been through the course in constitutional interpretation. Beware, Bob. They're armed and considered dangerous. Matt? I thought you would disarm them. <laughs> Hardly me. <laughs> um, I don't buy the idea of... Um the Constitution as a living, evolving document. But at the same time, how do you respond to people who would say, um, our culture has changed so much culturally, socially, technologically since the end of the 18th century, and we don't practice medicine the way we did then. We don't, uh, you know, our military doesn't function the same way. We don't do science that way. So why should our law be constrained by, you know, a bunch of uh, dead white men in a particular social context who happen to write that document at a particular time. Well, I'm dismayed by what you say about medicine. Uh, my doctor, he's putting leeches on me. <laughs> uh, but there are two answers to that. One is the, what we're talking about is not the precise application of constitutional principles. We're talking about the constitutional principles themselves should not change, and they can be adapted to new circumstances. For example, the obvious case is the Fourth Amendment's pro prohibition of unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, at the time they wrote that, they were thinking about a constable with big feet clomping into your house or into your office. Uh, but when electronic surveillance came along, it took the court a little while, but they quickly perceived that the principle was the same. The principle of not having the government in your home or your office without a warrant was the same. And they extended the Fourth Amendment protections to that form of surveillance, which founders couldn't conceivably have underseen. Uh, the other answer to it is that uh, you can change, you can add liberties all you want by legislation. Uh, in fact, most of our liberties, I would guess, are legislated rather than given in the Constitution. So there's uh, there's no there's no real danger about. Uh, about the Constitution freezing society as it was, it, it can't. It, but it can, it can stick to the principles that were enunciated. Uh, the trouble is when people talk about not being governed by dead white men, what they're doing is extending a, uh, the Constitution to apply to something it never applied to before, a new principle. And their real objection isn't to being governed by dead white men. It's to being governed by current living majorities. That's what they're objecting to. Did, did you want to follow up the challenge? No? Okay, other? Uh, yeah, uh, Lindsey Grinnell. 
You said that the court is enforcing the intellectual class values over the values of the people. But if the court were to miraculously stop enforcing their own values and instead the values of the people were reflected, with this rising intellectual class, do you think the result would be the same? No. Uh, you mean the intellectual class is now so big they have to constitute a majority? Do you I think that that would eventually happen with the direction uh, sorry, the country's going? Are you, are, is your question that if they started enforcing public morality, the intellectuals are now the public? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if the values of the people were, were reflected, would the intellectual class eventually become the majority? Let me, let me see if I can sharpen it, actually. I, I think what she has in mind is this. Uh, you uh, allowed that uh, certain changes were already underway culturally, and then I think you took the position that these changes went farther, faster, as a result of uh, the expansion of the knowledge class uh, and their control of the judiciary. But I think what Lindsay's saying is if the trend was in that direction anyway, down the line, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, wouldn't the result be the same? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so, because I think the, uh, I think the general public, uh, you know, has enacted laws limiting obscenity, pornography, uh, regulating abortion, not, not prohibiting it, but regulating it, and done a variety of things, all of which the court has struck down. And in striking it down, it not only allows those trends to proceed as a legal matter, but it also makes a moral statement. I mean, if you tell people that our most our, our basic document upon which our government rests uh, requires something like abortion on demand or close to it, they're likely to take that as a moral lesson as well as a legal lesson. Other questions? Uh, yes, up there. Mm -hmm. uh, can someone give them a microphone? We're asking you to use the microphones not only so that we can hear you, but uh, even more importantly, so that your question is recorded on the videotape. Uh, I know you said you neither want to bemoan the rise in judicial activism or the or the federal government's abandonment of its of the idea of the federal government being a government of delegated and enumerated powers, but if since both seem to have happened, would you say that one or the other, you seem to think maybe that the, that, the that the judiciary and judicial activism has become a greater threat to democracy than the federal government abandoning the idea of delegated and enumerated powers and becoming a government of general jurisdiction? So would you, would you say that that's true, that the judiciary is the greater threat? Yeah, except uh, I want to qualify that because uh, the bur bureaucracy uh, by which elected representatives pass off powers to faceless people um, who, who regulate us in ways most of us don't realize, uh, that's a great threat to democracy as well. But I think the uh, judiciary quite openly frustrates the democratic will, and uh, I, think it, it, I think it is a threat to self-government. It's also a threat, I think, to traditional culture which I place some value on. Bob, can I sharpen that one a little bit? And, uh, you keep sharpening these things. Over deep <laughs> well, I want to just ask you to help my students with the, the moot court question that they are writing this week while they're on, uh, while they're on break. Do you think that it would be uh, appropriate for an unelected and electorally unaccounted, uh, unaccountable judiciary 
to actually enforce constitutional uh, provisions that would take the extreme case, uh, forbid the national government from enacting a social security scheme without a constitutional amendment to delegate that power to them? Or is that an area where a constitutional violation should be taken care of by the democratic process itself, not by the judiciary intervening? Well, I think the answer to that is neither. I take it that the, I think the point that Edward Banfield, an extraordinarily acute uh, uh, commentator, was making is that uh, a large federal government without real limits to it is inevitable. The, the fact is the American people like big government. Now, they come to a grouse about it, but they all want entitlements. They all want a variety of government aid. And you, t you try taking away some part of big government that benefits them, and the screams are ferocious. So I don't think we're going to cure it by legislation, nor do I think we're going to cure it by judicial action. I think that is a feature of life that is permanent and uh, irreversible. That will not help you with the moot court question. <laughs> You've got to say yes or no. <laughs> Uh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, Daniel. When you were speaking about the these the lag between the changes in in the judiciary uh, behind the actual social changes, you referred to the life tenure of justices, and I was wondering if if you were suggesting that a different system in the judiciary, such as uh, elected positions or or limited terms, uh, might help the this uh, this problem, the politicization of the judiciary. Well, I think if you had, I think if you had limited terms, justices would be striving to make a name for themselves as rapidly as possible, and that would be disastrous. Uh, an elected judiciary, well, it depends on which way the elections go. You know, it could be could be a good thing. It could be a very bad thing. Uh, I don't see any point in. in uh, trying to fiddle with the constitutional arrangements about the judiciary. The, uh, well, you have proposed an amendment. I proposed an amendment, but I abandoned it. Uh, I, proposed, I proposed an amendment that would allow two-thirds, or was it majority, perhaps? Majority. majority. You've sure, no I know, but I don't remember. <laughs> I write these things in a hurry. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, there was a majority of the House and the Senate, as I recall to override any uh, any court decision, not just the Supreme Court. Uh, I said, the reason I abandoned that is that Canada has such a provision in their Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Article 33, or Section 33, whichever it is, which allows uh, the, the national parliament or any uh, uh, regional parliament to declare a a to say that a declaration of unconstitutionality by the court is overridden uh, for five years, and they can renew it. They can renew the declaration. The fact is that hasn't been used much, and the mystique of the judiciary is so powerful that any time you attempt to use a democratic curb, which is actually written into the Constitution, people scream interference with judicial independence. Of course, it's designed as an interference with judicial independence, but that doesn't matter. You know, the, the, the mystique of the judges is, is very great, of the robe. People think of judges as applying high-minded principle. They think of politicians in the legislature as being expedient and 
semi-corrupt and so forth. Uh, not, only half of that perception is correct. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, you argue that judicial activism is a, is a threat to democracy, but if you look at judicial history as a whole, don't you think it's uh, far safer to have a court that occasionally adds a right where the Constitution may not have intended than to have a court that impinges, uh, that occasionally impinges on rights that really should be there? Uh, yeah, I, suppose, I suppose so, but I, don't, I, don't know, I hope that's not our alternative. Uh, when you say occasionally, there's a long list. Of, uh, you know, if you get, get a chance, I wish I'd brought it with me, but I didn't, uh, to look at Lino Gralia's, his name is G-R-A-G-L-I-A, -A, monograph called Courting Disaster, in which he lists the variety of things the court has done to change the structure of government, to change the uh, way we behave, to change the way our lives are governed. It's a long list, and none of it it can be attributed to the actual Constitution. So that if you tell me, okay, an occasional departure might be better than a court that's inert when there are violations, okay, it is. That's not our choice, I don't think. The, um, over many years now of teaching constitutional interpretation, uh, I find that students naturally um, like to look at the problem of judicial uh, activism along the lines of the question over here as one of tallying up a balance sheet. Let's look at history. Now, we now have a long history of constitutional interpretation where the court has intervened very frequently in the name of individual rights or rights of the minority. And, and there's a ledger there. there. New rights were created in Dred Scott. Now, there were rights of slaveholders, rights of a minority against a majority who had enacted legislation. Same thing with Lochner against New York, the rights of employers were vindicated against majorities who would have preserved the rights of, of uh, 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 the, the laborers. Then Brown versus Board, the rights of the minority in the racial context. Do you think that at the end of the day, there is a grand balance sheet that can be drawn up and we can decide whether judicial activism has on the whole been good or bad? I would, I would suppose that whether you think that the balance is good or bad, depends upon your political outlook, and uh, I, I think that is too bad. I don't, think, I don't think the court should be judged politically. It should be judged by whether it's faithful to the actual Constitution. Uh, and I think Browning as Board is an interesting case. I think Browning as Board can be justified <laughs> in constitutional terms, but the interesting thing is the court didn't think so. The court thought it was doing something outside the Constitution, as you can tell by reading the opinion. And the fact that they managed to sustain that ruling against really very heated regional opposition uh, gave them self-confidence to go on to further activism. I don't think Browning against Ward was activism, but they thought it was. Uh, I think it encouraged them to go on to reform more and more of the society as they saw fit. Uh, and now the, the, uh, it, it's constant. Um, so that I, I don't think, if I were drawing up a balance, I would think that the frustration of democratic government would be uh, uh, the heaviest weight in that balance. 
and uh, would, would say that activism is improper. Anyway, I don't know that we, I don't think we, why choose a court? If you're going to choose a court and ask whether it does politically good things, then you ought to elect them every five years or something like that and uh, find out. All right, let's uh, open the uh, questioning more broadly. Yeah, anybody now can uh, ask a question. Students have had a good chance, including students. You're not off uh, limits now. Yeah, uh, Russ Neal. Uh, I wanted you to uh, uh, elaborate perhaps a little uh, uh, farther than you did about uh, the the dominance of a left liberal-oriented intellectual class. And uh, particularly I was interested in the question of whether or not to some extent over the last 20 years the balance uh, has been tipping slightly uh, in the other direction with the growth of uh, think tanks, conservatively oriented uh, uh, think tanks, uh, Heritage, Cato, a uh, libertarian uh, American Enterprise Institute, talk radio as sort of a counter a medium with uh, people like Rush Limbaugh and so on. Do you see the growth of sort of uh, a conservative intelligentsia in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, to some extent uh, counterbalancing the, the more liberal-oriented uh, culture of the universities, the law schools, and the, uh, the, the major television uh, networks? Uh, yeah, I think there is the growth of some conservative intellectuals, but uh, they are traitors to their class. You know, they shouldn't. Uh, but, but they really aren't. They, I think they have the better of the intellectual arguments, but I don't think they have the better of the, of the cultural control. If you look at the universities, they are enclaves of the left liberal uh, outlook. If you look at the network nightly news, from which 50% of the Americans say they get their only news, uh, you, get a, you get a left liberal output, outlook. A lot of people say they get their only knowledge of issues of the day from Saturday Night Live, uh, which is... Not too, en- not too encouraging. It could be worse. Could be worse. Yeah. yeah, it could be worse. Uh, but uh, give them the mic so we can hear them. I'm not. Yeah. Fox News has come uh, about as the one sort of conservative alternative to ABC, PS, CBS, I don't think PBS. it's conservative. I think it's. I don't think it's conservative. I think it's more down the middle. But anything down the middle is immediately denounced as reactionary by the by the left liberal media. <laughs> Now, Rush Limbaugh is conservative. There's no doubt about that. But I think he's talking to the converted. Uh, he's, he's upholding the morale of people who already agree with him, which is an important function uh, to, to maintain the morale. But if you look at the uh, you look at the churches, I won't I won't go into that because there are probably all kinds of trouble I would get into if I did. But you look at the churches and church bureaucracies. You look at the press, print press, the electronic press. You look at the universities and so forth, and uh, the foundations. They're all heavily left liberal, and they they command the they have the commanding heights in the culture, and they have a, they have rewards to give the up the young up and coming young, the conservatives don't have, uh, so that they they're, they're powerful out of all proportion to their numbers. Okay. Uh, yep. You spoke earlier about um, the deference that kept this Canadian provision from being used that would allow the Parliament to overrule a judicial decision. The, the deference, does that not in your mind seem like a, an act by the people to interpret how they want their constitution used? No. Why should, why should I suppose 
that uh, that the, the people who oppose interference with court decisions are the people, the people at large. I don't suppose that at all. Uh, I think it's the same intellectual class I've been talking about. We need a different word than intellectual class. You know, they aren't that intellectual. I've, t- I've tried uh, I've tried chattering class. I've tried the, the new class, but we need a different word. We refer to them as elites, and they aren't elite in any real sense. I, I got to think this. We don't have an appropriately pejorative word for them. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I I I don't know if the answer though was response. Let me see if I understand the, the question. I think his point was, if there is a democratic mechanism for reining in judicial activism in Canada, and if the mechanism is not utilized uh, via the democratic process, can we not infer from that that there's not sufficient support among the people for reining in their own judiciary? That seems to me a fair question. Yeah, there, there isn't sufficient support among the people for reigning in their own judiciary. There's sufficient support among the people to pass the law. The judiciary is just struck down. But there are heavy constituencies that support what the court has done. And it's very hard to get that overruled. Uh, uh, plus the fact that uh, that they're always, you're always accused of trying to destroy the judiciary. And people quail before that accusation. In Israel, that court, which does the most astounding things, <coughs> if they're criticized in sharp terms, there's immediately a call for criminal prosecution. Uh, and uh, I recall, you know, head of the head of the American Bar Association, uh, not this one, I guess a prior one, said that anybody who complains about activist courts is complaining about the separation of powers, is complaining about the Constitution. Uh, people don't understand their constitutional arrangements, and they don't uh, understand fully what the courts are doing. And if the courts do it in the name of the Constitution, many people think they must be right. It must, there must be a principle there that they have discerned. And they, they, there isn't one there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, sir, right here. For the uninitiated, how does one tell that uh, uh, inactivism is not a political ideology has its base. You are you're, you're advocate. You are saying that the judicial activism it threatens democracy. Now, for most of us, we are not constitutional scholars. Now, if we take uh, constitutional inactivism, I assume that that's the. Th- Things that based on rigorous interpretation of the uh, Constitution. How do we know that itself is not based on political ideology? Well, it is. Uh, it's based upon a political ideology that happens to be the foundation of the American government. I mean, the, the American government, you know, the, the anti-federalists were saying that the courts are capable of becoming tyrannical, and they opposed the Constitution for that reason. The federalists denied it and said the courts would exercise judgment but not will. And, uh, and a court that began to move over into policy would be usurping a function that was not theirs. So I think the basis of the American separation of powers and, 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 uh, in our government is a court that confines itself to interpreting law and not a court that begins to make up principles in accordance with some ideological viewpoint. 
Now, before 1937, there were activist conservative judges because that was a time when the business class was the dominant class. Since then, it has gone the other way. But activism, I don't think, is legitimate no matter whether it's in the hands of conservatives or liberals. Uh, down, down here. You seem to be quite skeptical about the idea of international law. Um, and given the fact that the Constitution makes treaties the supreme law of the land, I wonder if you would comment further on your idea of international law, because you seem to imply that existing prosecutions against people for crimes against humanity and other offenses articulated as part of international law are somehow illegitimate. Should we stop the trial of Slobodan and Milosevic? And how do you view Nuremberg and the Japanese trials? Well, I started at the end. I think there was no law antecedent to Nuremberg that anybody could cite. I was all for killing the Hermann Goering and those fellows. But it would have been more honest. I think the, the, the English initially proposed no court, just a trial to make sure you had the right people and to make an historical record and then execute them, which would have been more honest. And the fact is the Nuremberg trials set a precedent that there was this international law, which there wasn't, and has been a thorn um, on our side ever since. Now, the Constitution makes... Uh, uh, the Constitution laws passed in pursuance thereof and the and treaties, the, the uh, law of the land. Of course, a treaty can be abrogated by Congress any time it passes an inconsistent statute. And those are treaties. What we're talking about now is customary international law in which it is said that international principles have evolved, not, not a treaty, just principles have evolved, which federal judges should apply, and they've begun to apply under this uh, Alien Tort Claims Act, uh, so that uh, and 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 I think the real danger is that we will begin to acquiesce in foreign courts, foreign judges judging our actions and our citizens, and and there is a great deal of anti-American hostility in those courts. Sure. <laughs> I tell you, Even instead of that, why don't you sharpen my answer a little bit? <laughs> Sorry. Given the fact that there is a universal charter, UN universal charter on universal human rights, and given the fact that human rights language is a sort of reality of international politics and American foreign policy, most notably during the Carter administration, don't you feel that there are now established international principles, specifically the when people make claims about international human rights that are important in this realm, or do you totally discount... Um, that sort of judicial decision-making? Well, where, does, where do these international human rights come from? They, they come from Jimmy Carter's rhetoric? and well, They come uh, from the U.N. Well, the U.N. document is quite a, quite a vague document. Uh, but, uh, well, why don't you test it with the Milosevic case? I mean, he raised the Milosevic case. Well, the Milosevic case was not U.N. That was a special court created for Yugoslavia. And but what about the Rwanda case? Well, you mean the Belgians trying the Rwandan nuns? No, I mean the special, uh, the special oh. tribunal that was set up to try war crimes. And, uh, yeah, well, they're going to try war crimes. Uh, when my, my point is, isn't there a place for these international tribunals when domestic judicial systems break down or when those systems refuse to prosecute grave human rights offenders? 
Uh, no, I, uh, there are so many specifics that it's hard to deal with them all at once, but the fact is that these idea of international law punishing violations of human rights is a highly hypocritical uh, law. Uh, the Spanish judge who issued a warrant for Pinochet wanted him extradited for trial in Spain. At the same time, or within the same time period, two such uh, petitions were presented to French and Spanish courts for Fidel Castro. They were dismissed out of hand. Now, the fact is, the only people who are subject to that kind of international law are leaders of small and perhaps right-wing nations. Large nations, powerful nations, or left-wing nations are just not subject to that. We, you know, the Chinese are far more murderous than, than uh, Pinochet ever dreamed of being. We give banquets for them. And I, I find it hard to call that law when it is applied in such a highly political manner. Uh, and I don't think it's a, uh, I, think it, I think it's a disservice to the ideal of law to say that that kind of politics is law. We have time for one more question over there. There's a current in uh, left liberal intelligentsia critical legal theory about the notion that uh, appealing to the text itself is a biased philosophy, like the text is not what the so-called founding fathers intended, or because there were disagreements among the founding fathers as to what the Constitution should say, the language was so general as to open itself to different interpretations of the language itself. What would your response be to that argument? Well, I think we know from the practices of the framers that they would not have for one thing, they would not have been as hostile to religion as the court is. The, the, the language does say the establishment of a religion, the establishment of a church or a religion is not the same thing as any manifestation of religion in the public square must be expunged. Uh, I think we can say from what they, we know about the First Amendment and how it was applied, that they would not have said that the First Amendment uh, allowed child pornography, uh, that it allowed uh, all, all kinds of... Uh, things that we now allow. Uh, the language is general, but I think from history and practice, we know more about it than we pretend we do. And the fact is, all legislation is passed by people with different thoughts in their heads. Uh, so that you, you could say if, if the Constitution is, uh, has provisions about which the framers did not really understand in the same way, that is true of every law we have. Uh, and we don't do that. What we do is interpret it not by what is in somebody's head, the subjective intention, we interpreted by what the understanding of reasonable people at the time would have been. And we use as evidence for that the records of the Philadelphia Convention, the debates between the Federals and the Anti-Federals, and so forth and so on, to try to find out what the original understanding was. For example, if we had a law that made it illegal to fire a certain kind of a gun, and somebody was prosecuted for owning such a gun, uh, and two, you got two members of Congress who made up the majority coming in and saying, well, we really meant owning. We just happened to say firing. You pay no attention to them. You don't care what was in their skulls. What you care about is what people would have understood from the language and from the history of the, the legislative history of the statute. And the same thing is true of the Constitution. Good. Well, uh, 
Before uh, I uh, thank uh, Bob Bork for that invigorating uh, lecture, let me just uh, do a bit of commercial advertising. The, uh, <laughs> I'm exercising my free speech. Uh, we uh, opened the Alpheus Mason lectures this year with a vigorous defense of left liberal jurisprudence by James Fleming of the Fordham uh, University Law School. Many of you were here for that wonderful occasion. And now we have on the table, compliments of Judge Bork, a vigorous critique uh, of exactly that tradition of legal thinking. Well, this debate is going to continue uh, at Princeton uh, in the James Madison program and uh, elsewhere. We have a number of speakers who will be addressing these questions from competing points of view uh, over the course of the uh, semester and the year. And we'll be advertising those widely, both within the university and uh, to the folks out uh, in the town. And you're all welcome. They're all open to the public. Uh, and also, since we had a terrific question about the relationship of international institutions to national sovereignty, uh, I want to call your attention to a conference that the Madison program will be hosting uh, with some very distinguished people representing the competing points of view on international institutions and national sovereignty this April. Again, that will be uh, very widely uh, uh, advertised. Uh, it's going to be open to the public. Uh, we're going to be discussing the debating, I should say, uh, the International Criminal Court with uh, uh, people who are both very strongly in favor, indeed were involved in the creation of that court, and people who are very strongly opposed, such as Professor Rabkin, who will be here, but Judge Bork uh, mentioned. You all will be uh, uh, invited uh, to that via the university and public media. After uh, this session, you are very welcome to join us uh, for a reception uh, just outside. And finally, let me uh, uh, tell you about the next lecture in the Mason Well, uh, the next lecture we have in the Madison program, inaugurating our new series on America's founding and future. That is November 13th. Again, it will be widely advertised. November 13th, we'll be welcoming, uh, no? Ah, Professor Arcus. We've changed. Yes, Professor Arcus will be lecturing on November 7th, right? Uh, 4th. November 4th. And that's an evening lecture. 8 o'clock, uh, and then uh, Christopher DeMuth on November 13th uh, at 4.30. Both Professor Arcus's lecture and Professor De and Dr. DeMuth's lecture will be open to the public. They will be widely advertised in the university and the uh, campus media, uh, media, and you are all invited. Please join me in thanking Judge Robert Voigt. Please join us for the reception.